I would like to welcome our guest. She's been on before, but it's been way too long. We'd love to have her on, Dr. Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz. And she is an historian, author, memorist, and speaker who researches Western Hemisphere history and international human rights. She grew up in rural Oklahoma, the daughter of a tenant farming family, and she's been active in the international indigenous movement for more than four decades, and she is known for her lifelong commitment to national and international social justice issues. Dr. Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz, welcome. Thank you, Margaret. It's good to be back with you. Yeah, so there's so much to unpack here. I mean, let us just start, if we could go a little bit further back. You have written about settler colonialism and the Second Amendment. And I'll have to tell you, I learned so much reading it because Dr. Horn, who's a regular on our show, we have discussed the American Revolution, the 1776 Revolution, and his thesis that, in fact, slavery was a key issue in that, in terms of protecting slavery. Tell us your thoughts about that war, the Declaration of Independence, and the so-named Indian Wars. Yeah, well, Dr. Horn is just our really best living historian in my mind, and I learned so much from him as well. I, of course, do settler colonial studies, so my core interest is the settler colonialism and the white replacement of Native American nations across the continent. After the founding of the United States, continuation of wars of conquest, they had only managed to conquer uh, the 13 colonies. That took 150 years. Native people did not give up their farms, their villages, their fishing areas, lobster beds for just handed over. So this created a fundamentally militaristic United States of what has been called a fiscal military state. That is a state founded um, racial capitalism, militarism. So that's written into the constitution, but a previous Northwest ordinance is really more important than the constitution because it's the fundamental mapping of what the constitution itself would, you know, build the structure of law around it. And very few people, it's very rarely taught in history courses, even though you can go on the internet, read the whole thing word for word. It's always been available. It's not a secret. And there are maps. And what it does is map the way the conquest across the continent the plan to get to the first, the first part is to get to the Mississippi River, because that area was colonized, you know, beyond the Mississippi, colonized by the Spanish. But it went on that it was going to kick out the Spanish and get to the Pacific, and then get control the Pacific and China. So this is an ancient history. This is today. They're still working at that to control China, to control Asia and the whole Pacific. So this is a a founding of an imperialist state. And the ethnic cleansing of Native people is the real basis to the gun culture, because this 
was done with guns. So this started in 1607 with the first founding colony. I think the important factor of, and usually misunderstanding of Native American cultures, 99% of Native people in the Western Hemisphere, even in, in the Amazon, be in 1492 were agricultural. It was the most important three areas of the Western Hemisphere were among the seven founding sites of agrarian civilization. So agrarian civilization without capitalism and collective sharing, many different cultures, but a fundamental sort of basis, they produce the most of the vegetables that are eaten around the world today. So they, the settlers didn't come in, you know, to a jungle or a dense forest. Everything was developed on the continent and had been for 10,000 years. So what they did was appropriate, appropriate already developed land and territory. So it was very quickly they could make themselves wealthy, but they had to make money to pay the royal crown for their right to be there and to be settlers. So plantation agriculture developed immediately in Virginia, of course, and then, you know, bringing 1619, the first enslaved people. And then by 1660, 1670s, the slave codes had been fully developed and the slave patrols have been fully developed. So that's, yeah. that's the, the, the sort of nutshell, you know, of the founding. It's really a dual settler colonialism with slavery and genocide. Absolutely. And, you know, your work is so important at this time that you now have history books, you know, being, you know, changing the history and, and uh, certain things not being mentioned and also the banning of books. And you talked about the vision. I mean, you write about Thomas Jefferson and, you know, his dream of continental expansion, as you said, all the way to the Pacific. So a a kind of vision, as you say, of manifest destiny that later, a few years later, became the Monroe Doctrine. And absolutely right. We're still right in the midst of, of that battle right now. So the interesting thing also that I that I learned was about the role of, of Barbados and these slave patrols, because apparently you make the case that nearly all law related to slavery was forged in the colonies, came out of the colonies from existing practices, including the English Caribbean plantation colonies. And of course, I'm from Barbados and really interested in this because mm-hmm. I have known that a lot of the, the slave masters, as we would call them, from Barbados came to the United States along the, the coast, but also the fact that they brought the slave codes that were developed in Barbados. Tell us, tell us a little bit about that and the relationship then with that and the slave patrols. Yes, yeah, so well, Barbados, as I'm sure you know, was the most brutal part of major brutality because it's so absolute, but it definitely yeah. was beyond the bounds of any other site I've ever found of enslavement in the Americas. It was uh, a very few white people 
mostly absentee landlords living in castles in England and with managers and utter brutality. I think the average age of a, a slave was about 28 years old to live that long, you know, with being starved, beaten, food used as a, as a way of forcing more work, harder work. So these are the slave owners then that decided to build a colony. South Carolina was already legally a colony, but it was very hard to get settlers there. It was very densely populated with the Tuscarora native people, farming people. So they came and they had already developed slave codes and slave patrols. So they not only brought their slaves, they brought with them slave patrols, the patrollers. So they were, you know, basically British citizens. And they weren't, you know, the kind of thing you see in Gone with the Wind, you know, sort of the, the caricature of a poor white gnarling uh, person. They were just regular citizens, you know, who also owned slaves. But everyone, all white people had to participate in slave patrols to control Native people. So guns and slavery were intimately associated with each other. All slave raiding relied on guns and all slaveholding relied on armed repression. So this was what they set up. And it was so successful, in quotation marks, <laughs> that it was copied then in Virginia. And then, of course, in the North Carolina colony was set up. They just imported it, you know, as such. So this was the illegal, this was colonial law that really was simply adopted in U.S. law with the revolution. Didn't miss a beat, you know, and that's why it's not discussed. You know, historians will say, well, that's not spelled out in the you know, the founding fathers when they're building. They didn't have to. That was just the way it was, that already existed. They didn't have to create anything new. But that's where the Second Amendment comes in. That's so important. I Unfortunately, our liberal sisters and brothers, and many leftists too, are kind of stuck on this idea that the Second Amendment is about the National Guard, about state militias that were established. But those were established in Article 8 of the Constitution, the whole spelled out what the, they called them state militias at the time. The army, of course, the federal army was, was, was also spelled out. But the state militias could be called on just like the National Guard today. And later they came to be called National Guard. So it makes no logical sense in a Bill of Rights for individual rights that the militias that are mentioned would have anything whatsoever to do with state militias or National Guard. They were empowering settlers to do what they were already doing, which was establishing slave patrols and militias to kill Native people and take their land, which is what they were initially about. But this was then codified, basically, as an individual right. So this, uh, there's very little sense of, of this history, the real history of it, that this was normal because there's so much romanticizing of the Constitution that this ugly little thing 
you know, the Second Amendment that's there, they want to somehow say it's out of date. But it's not really out of date because there's still white supremacy, white nationalism, and the control of Black people. <laughs> and of course, Indians' reservation. So the colonial system still exists in the practice of modern police is directly related to slave patrols. It's, it's really interesting. I don't know if you've noticed this, but to me, because I, you know, I know about the slave patrols, when a policeman shoots, I think he won in Sacramento, where a guy was out with uh, binoculars looking at the sky, a young black man. And a neighbor called, a white neighbor, and said, there's a black man in the yard. It wasn't in her yard. It was next door. And the police came, and they shot him. And then the policeman said, he says, I don't know why I did that. You know, I don't know why I did it. And, you know, shooting black people in the back while they're running, it's like a DNA you know, in the police, because that's their roots. And when things, you know, psychologists know, Freud knew, if you don't bring these things to uh, consciousness, they're deeply in the subconscious. And, you know, that can be very, very destructive, of course. So I think that police training, I really traced it of the Southern, of course, in the South, in what became the Confederacy, and the deep south is where the slave patrols and policing were hardly any light between those two things. But after the Civil War, they developed their, basically the Ku Klux Klan were the slave patrollers that continued during Reconstruction. And when they were able to tap down and control and reestablish the order of controlling Black people and back to the cotton fields and disenfranchisement and so forth. They started setting up sheriff's department, but this, these sheriffs were simply renamed and they had been the Ku Klux Klan. The Ku Klux Klan, I don't ever see this in histories of the Ku Klux Klan, that they were simply slave patrollers that had to put hoods on because they were illegal after the Civil War, and could be arrested. I think it's a great tragedy of history that the United States, Lincoln was already expanding United States power at war with the Navajos, at war with the Cheyenne people during the Civil War, which is never written about that history, was sending more and more of the army. So at the end of the Civil War, sent five of the six divisions of the U.S. Army to west of the Mississippi for conquest of Native people. And those wars raged on for 30 years. Well, you know, Dr. Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz, I'm looking at the clock and I'm so sad because you know, we're out of time, but I've been wanting to have you on and do an in-depth with you. And I know you were working on your latest book. Your book is Not a Nation of Immigrants, Settler Colonialism, White Supremacy, and a History of Erasure and Exclusion, and would really love when you could find the time uh, to come back with us and we'll get a lot deeper into all of this. I mean, you're like a mini encyclopedia with the, <laughs> this, this information, with the work. 
really important work that you've done. So we are going to have to leave it there, but thank you so very much for joining us and please let us know <laughs> when we could grab your attention again and, yes, and uh, have a full hour discussion with you. And people might want to get hold of my book, Loaded, Disarming History of the Second Amendment, in which right. all of these things are explained. Uh, it's okay. a very cheap little book. Right. Okay. Well, thank you. We'll speak again. But we, we got a dash. <laughs>